Matthew chapter 12, or Matthew chapter 19, rather, verses 1 through 12. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. Great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement, and to put her away. He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, if the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. This chapter may be as much or even more than the previous chapter in Matthew 18, which really spoke about the need and the spirit of humility. This chapter requires as much or maybe more humility. The spirit of the Lord and the spirit of that we see with our Lord's interactions, this chapter really is encapsulated by three encounters or three meetings that Jesus has with people. These meetings are not only what comes from God, but also what dominates human nature. It's the contrast between what is of God and what is of man. He deals with the subject of marriage, divorce, children, and even the character of a young man. Particularly with the young man, the condition of his heart, the condition of humanity is exposed. At the same time, we understand that his humanity is exposed, but we also see that there is an emphasis that Jesus places on first things, old things, creation, and that how even creation itself has been corrupted by the sin of man. At the same time, there's a way that those who are in the kingdom of heaven should live. Friends, there's always been a difference between those in the light and those who are not in the light. Those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and those who are not. We cannot look out on our landscape and see and say everyone is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's just not true. But the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, there is a set of 
commandments. There is a set of ways, principles, that are correct, are proper. Sadly, what we're seeing happening in our day and age, and it has already happened, it's not happening, it already has happened, the lines have been blurred between the sacred and the unsacred, the holy and the unholy, the things of God and the things that are not of God, so that the line has been so marred and so corrupted that even in the churches, you don't see people living like citizens of God, you see people living like citizens of the world. Jesus always had in mind a difference. Now I realize today it's <laughs> to be different, to take a different stand in the world is in some ways you're putting your life on the line. You might be putting your job on the line. You might actually be putting your family on the line if you take a different stand than the citizens of the world take. You just have to go out in society just for a few moments to see that you are running, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you are running counterculture. And if you look up, not to be cute, and everyone's running the same way that you're running, you're running the wrong way. If everyone seems to be going one way and you're going the same way, it's probably you that shouldn't be going that way. Jesus very clearly says there's a way that I have created things. There's an order I've created to them. And I can say without any apology that God has not made a mistake in anything that he's done, including with the way he created and who he created. It has always been, it will always be, God's creation was perfect. When he looked upon it, he said it was good, including his declaration of male and female. His declaration of what marriage is. His declaration of what the, bond, what the bounds of that marriage is. What, what binds that marriage together. And again, what the problem comes in is the humanity and man's heart. Man wants you to think that there's something wrong with God's way. They want you to think that God's way is the wrong way. God's way is the bigoted way. God's way is the prejudiced way. God's way is wrong. And sadly, what we're seeing happen is Christians are backing into a corner and they're saying, well, maybe we just won't say anything. You're not living up to your God-given responsibilities if you do that. If you're just simply allowing the world to push you because you're afraid of what it might cost you, Again, don't be surprised if the world's pushing you one way. That's what you're to expect. Nothing should shock you. I mean, we should be beyond the realm of being shocked by what the world's trying to do. But we're still called to live a certain way. There are things that we cannot change or compromise on. You, you, cannot, you cannot, just for the sake of unity, change an opinion of what God has declared to be truth. So if a fellow brother or sister in Christ decides that they believe that marriage needs to be redefined, that is, that is not an issue you can compromise on. You, you can't say, all right, well, you're a brother or sister in Christ and you have your opinion that marriage doesn't have to be between a man and a woman. It can be between two men, two women, two whatever. You are, that is not an area where you can compromise on and say, well, we can still be in unity then. That's impossible. 
the very act of creation and you're trying to redefine it. Or you're trying to redefine gender. Well, you know, it's, it's just, again, parents, I'm, I'm trying to be very delicate today for your sake. You can't redefine it. You cannot redefine gender. And you can't say that it's all right if we have the same attraction for people of the same gender and say, well, we can all be Christians and we can all get along with this. That statement, God created male and female, really, if you really think about the pressing issues of the day, really is the answer to every single problem that is really pressing on us right now. Whether it's in school, whether it's in government, whether it's in the church. And it's so simple. In the beginning, God created male and female. Think about how many sinful things are coming out of that. To deny God's creation of male and female is the very heartbeat of what's happening. That's why every wicked thing that is an offshoot of those sins, why it grows deeper and goes darker and it's going farther and farther and farther because it's one sin branching off to another sin. Every denial of God's way, God's, God's creation, will lead to sin. It'll lead to further sin. It'll lead you further and further away from God. This issue of same-gender marriage, same-gender attraction, it has already gotten a foothold in churches. It's, it's not working its way. It's already there. It's worked its way into schools. It's worked its way into universities. I would love to stand here and tell you, yet yeah, it's got a hold of all the secular schools. No, it's in the Christian elementary schools. It's in the Christian junior highs. It's in the Christian high schools. It's in the Christian universities. This is not a secular problem. As forcefully as I can say this, we have got to wake up. Christians are sitting like cowering lambs in a corner and we're doing nothing. It's just the way it is. Pulpits are scared to death to preach on it because they're afraid of losing their biggest givers. This church isn't. That is never going to be the driver of what this church stands on. It can't be. You cannot stand and compromise and say, well, if I say it, I'm going to lose them. I say this as all kindness as I can. Sometimes that has to take place. It has to. Sometimes God has to remove. And yet, knowing all these things, what should our heart be? Are we to be filled with venom and hatred towards those who are advocating these sins? That's what our human nature is going to lead us to do, is to first of all hate it. Now, hate that sin, no question about it, but they need the gospel. You think you never have to say it. Christian schools need the gospel. Christian universities need the gospel. For too long, we've just put a, we've just put a label on it. We just put a name on it. As long as it's got the label, it's good. As long as it's a Baptist church, it's, it's there. We're not a part of it. And again, I'm not meaning to offend, but the 
same gender, same-sex marriage, all that, that got into the Southern Baptist Convention 10 years ago. It got in. But it got into other, it got into other Baptist organizations. It's flourishing in some denominations because it's been there for a long, long time, but it's even gotten in, it's beginning to get into our Reformed Baptist churches. It's beginning to permeate. Now again, my intention is not for me to simply give you what I think. But I would tell you that the subject, the matter in which Jesus is dealing with, is not that different than what we're dealing with today. You'll notice that Jesus, when he had finished these sayings, verse 1 tells us, that's a reference to the previous chapter. Again, sometimes we're, it's very unfortunate chapter divisions were put there by the translators because it seems to break our thoughts. This is a continuation of that entire chapter of Matthew 18 when we dealt with offenses and dealt with forgiveness and dealt with restoration dealt with the realities of what it is by being an unforgiving servant. Jesus finishes these sayings, and he had spoken in the previous chapter about forgiveness. He spoke about the words of eternal life. He finished those sayings, but he wasn't done speaking about the matters at hand. If all we do is speak about the gospel as something that is eternal and that we, it's necessary to save us, and then we stop there, we're missing part of it. The effect of the gospel is, is that you put those principles into practice. The gospel will make you live differently. The power of God unto salvation is not just to get your golden ticket to the streets of gold. Jesus Christ is to be and is the Lord of your life. He's not just the ticket to get me out of here. We are supposed to live in this present evil world. We are supposed to live as citizens who are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but we are to live and put into practice what this means. Notice that these words that Jesus wants us to put into practice, and even in these very matters of creation. Jesus is not shy of declaring what is true. Again, notice verses 1 and 2. It says that it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee, came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Jesus continued to heal people as needed. But as he had finished these sayings upon forgiveness, there was still more work to do. He was always moving. He departed from Galilee, it said. Galilee had received so much of his ministry, so much of his care. But now he turns into the coast of Judea, beyond Jordan, and he did good work there as well. After he speaks these words, and while he's speaking these words in verse 2, he's been talking to his disciples, he's been doing these works of grace, great multitudes followed him. I would submit to you today, there are a lot of people who want to follow a Jesus of their own creation. It isn't hard to make a Jesus that fits into earthly and worldly society, who everybody wants a part of if you just frame him right. 
If you make him appeal to your humanity and to your whims and your desires, then this Jesus will be accepted. Multitudes will flock to him. You know the way that church success and church rightness has been measured for centuries and how it's still measured? Simply by how many? If you've got a church over there that's got a thousand, they must be doing something right. If you've got a church over there that's got one or two or ten, they're doing something wrong. It's never been God's way. Are there churches of a thousand, churches of more that are sound and solid doctrinally? Absolutely there are. But that's never been the measurement as to how many. Or who approves of it. The reality is, is are they true to the Scriptures? Do they hold the Scriptures as the final authority on what they believe and practice? Again, as I mentioned at 10 o'clock, it's not that we can't have confessions of faith. It's not that we can't have something that summarizes it. But do you know that the Bible's not silent about these areas of marriage and gender? Either is our confession. There's a whole chapter on marriage. And it clearly says, marriage, for example, is between one man and one woman, period. End of discussion. Modern thinking says, but what about? You know what the, you know what the reasoning behind why same gender is okay? It's pretty simple but they love each other. If they love each other, that's all it takes is love. If that's all it is, but it's against biblical, against biblical principles, something's not right. I say all that because that's the subject that's going to be brought before Jesus as a means not to learn, but as a means to try to trap him. I do not think I'm overstepping the bounds when I say this. It's the same thing that's being used to trap churches is this same subject of marriage and gender and male and female. Church, what are you going to do? Are you going to accept us or not? Are you going to accept what we say is right? No. Do we want you to hear the gospel? Yes. Are we going to cave into the, your worldly opinion of what you think about God's Word? No. Do we want you to be saved? Yes. Do we want you to know the truth? Yes. Understand that in verse 3, this is so telling. The Pharisees. We know the story of the Pharisees. Jesus referred to them as hypocrites. He referred to them many times as whitewashed sepulchers. The Pharisees came unto him, notice, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tempting him, saying unto him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now this is a question of hypocrisy, and I'm going to show you that this morning. This is a desire that is being driven by intentional malice 
and with an intent to accuse and an intent to destroy. The Pharisees at no point in their interactions with Jesus, including this one, were interested in learning at all. This was not about instruction. This was about tempting him. They assumed that they were interested, so they inquired. They thought, let's give the appearance that we care. In truth, no matter what Jesus said, the Pharisees were prepared to dispute with him. So keep that in mind. No matter what answer Jesus gave, the Pharisees were going to dispute it. Because the question that they ask, some of you are already seeing it, is a broad leading question with an intent to entangle. Could be a simple question today to our church. What's your church's stance on same gender marriage? Whatever answer, the only answer they're going to accept is whatever answer they want it to be. But if you give them the biblical answer, that's not what they want. It's interesting. Companies, businesses can put a statement of what they believe about things. And if you go and you look at the statement and they take action against somebody or something and they look at that statement of how they handle things, they look at that and say, okay, that's your statement, you're good. But do you know, like our articles and our constitution and bylaws has a note in there about our position on same-sex marriage and on gender, you put that up as a church and they say, you can't do that. That's, you are, you are being hateful. That's hate speech. Folks, it's coming like a train. It's not far from those front doors. It's crept pretty close already. It's coming. You can have... Hold the scriptures up and you can say, because this Bible declares that there's male and there's female, that's it. Psy doesn't care. They don't care what your Bible says. They don't care what your articles of faith say. They don't care what your constitution says. They don't care what your confession of faith says. Because you're taking a stand that's different than theirs. These Pharisees had no interest at all in understanding what Jesus had to say, it's a question that's asked to deceive. The question, look at the wording of it. Notice it's not by accident. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? I have two things underlined, the word lawful and the word for every. You see, the broader the terms of the question, the broader that we place a question, the more likely you are to be entangled by that. In other words, if I can ask you a broader question, I have more avenues to entangle you with. This statement, this question is extremely broad. Something being lawful and for every cause. That's the key to understanding what's happening here. Now, the reason this is important is because the Pharisees actually knew 
what the old what the law of the old testament said about marriage and we may or may not touch on that today but their own consciences should have told them that, first of all that they knew that even in the mosaic law itself for example the marriage bond was not to be severed for any and every reason now again, he's going to talk about this and we're going to deal with this probably more next week and maybe the week after that. But what he is saying here and what they're asking is the Pharisees even knew that this was not what the law said. Man likes to mention it that way, but that's not what the law actually said. It's like we talked about at 10 o'clock. The question that the serpent asked Adam and Eve and Eve specifically in that case was what? Hath God really said? And of course, that's not what God had said. God had said, yes, you shall die. If you partake of this fruit, you're going to die. So what the Pharisees, they're taking a, sim they're taking a similar tactic here. It was a question, again, you've got to put yourself in the context. There's nothing new under the sun. Marriage... And what severed a marriage, this is not a new concept. It was a dispute even in Jesus' day and going all the way back into the days of Moses and even into the law about when could a divorce or when could a marriage be severed. We act like divorce is brand new. That You, you know, you didn't hear about it. Now, you might be hearing more about it and maybe there are more divorces happening, but it's not new. Bill of divorcement, we'll see. It's not that this wasn't an issue. This was a common issue of the day. The Pharisees were using common issues of the day to try to entangle Jesus. What, what's the world trying to entangle us with today? The issues of the day. Have you ever noticed they're not worried about your doctrine of salvation? They don't care if you're Arminian or Calvinist or Reformed or Methodist. Or, they don't care. All they want to do is entangle you with the issues of the day. It's always been the case. And Jesus, in the same manner here, that's what they're trying to do. There was dispute over when a man could send away his wife at his own will. Or did it require a serious proven allegation and an actual act? Whatever Jesus said about this, the Pharisees were going to use it as a verdict against him to declare him as something bad. There was no Pharisee saying, if Jesus says this, we'll be good with it. That's why it's an entangling question. They were attempting, here's at the heart of it, they were attempting to show Jesus that he was opposed to the law of Moses. Ultimately, at the heart of this, they wanted to prove you are opposed to the law of Moses. Now again, we're gonna we're gonna do part of this and we're gonna have to we're gonna have to come back, all right? So look at verse four. Here's his answer. He answered and said unto them, this is, this is the evidence of a perfect teacher, <laughs> a perfect God, a perfect Lord. 
Have ye not read? He doesn't go off and say, what do you mean? He says, have ye not read? Now here's, he's asking a question here he knows the answer to. They knew the law. They knew everything about the bills of divorcement. They knew everything about what could sever a marriage. They knew everything about it. And yet he answered them, have ye not read? But look where he goes back to. That he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined, joined together, let not man put asunder. Now, it's interesting to me that he didn't just go right to the marriage he went back to creation. And he clearly states male and female. Now, I can't prove to you biblically whether there was a problem with same gender marriage. But I will tell you this there's a reason why he went back to male and female. And why he started creation to show God's order, God's design, and God's plan in the beginning. God is not a reactionary God that has to adjust and react to the issues of the day. It's us believers that act like something new is happening. It's you and I who look and we say, what's God going to do about this? God's going to do the same thing he's done about everything else. He's going to carry out his purposes and his plans according to his good pleasure. And we have a responsibility too, to obey his word and to follow his commandments, and to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, even though we're living here. Even if the world says, you can't do that, we have to keep living that way. In his reply to them, Jesus, first of all, challenges their knowledge of the law. Now, is it fair to say that in the matters of divorce and the matters of same gender, marriages and things, do most of them know the law of what God's word says? I think there's an awareness of it. If, if you want, want to talk to me on a sidebar, I would tell you this. I think they good and well know. Same-sex marriage, I, they know it's not right. <laughs> the conscience is screaming, this is not right. But man can sear his conscience... Romans 1 says he can turn the glory of God into whatever he wants it to be. And they'll use the moniker, all you need is love. If you've got love, any, and, and folks, I don't mean to be too graphic here. If all you need is love, that means there are a lot of other marriages that are not off the table that are coming our way. And you say, what in the world are you talking about? Watch. Watch what happens. Someone told me the other day, we are up to 48 different combinations of gender. I'm like, what are you talking about? How? How did we get here? This is man's reasoning. And as we learned at 10 o'clock this morning, but man can save himself. This is what man will create. 48 clear says there's 48 genders. There's probably more. 
And what does God's word says? Pretty clear. Male and female. Every single person I'm looking at today, you are either male or female. That's it. And if you're having a crisis about that, that's on you, not God. Well, we just got to be accepting of the crisis. It wasn't too long ago I heard someone actually say that Jesus himself had a gender crisis. <laughs> or that that story between David and Jonathan, we all know that one, right? David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. See? See, it's right there. That's not what the law of God says, and that's not what that means. Love, love, love is all you need. As long as you have love, any two can be married. Not just two. You can have a whole group. My prediction, again, you can disagree with this. It won't be long. Polygamy will be legal. <laughs> we look at it, we think, how, how, where else can this go? No, the question is, where can't it go? So are we as Christians going to stand back and look at that and say, whoa, wait a minute. Well, I guess we can't do anything about you. We can do something about it. The gospel. Churches are scrambling around and are trying to figure out, well, how do we get a support group for all these groups? It's not a support group. It's the same thing they've always needed. It's the same thing you needed. The gospel. If you don't have a ministry to that particular sin... No, that's not where the answer is. The answer is in the gospel. Jesus is challenging their knowledge of the law. We're cowering against people who don't even really know God's law. And we think, well, maybe they've got a point. No, they don't have a point. It was a forced way of Jesus to appeal to their own boasting and pride. There was no individuals more prideful in Jesus's day than the Pharisees. And we have evidence of that because the apostle Paul declared himself that he was prideful and boasting and that he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. When he said that, he was basically telling you, I'm, I was the prideful of the pride filled. When he uses the word, I will boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ, that wasn't just an accidental slip of the tongue. His whole boasting had been about his own knowledge before. And Jesus is using that against him. And he says, have you not read you pride-filled, boastful Pharisees who are the spiritual leaders of the day, and you're asking me a question like this. Our Lord, Jesus Christ, always honored Scripture. And He always used Scripture for His appeals. He drew His argument from the Scriptures. Where are we drawing our argument from? When someone asks you, why are you against these same gender marriages? Why are you against gender changing? What do you tell them? Back it up with what the scripture says. Was that really enough? It should be. In the beginning, God made them male and female. Folks, that's the end of the story. You could take the, the issues of the day, you could take Matthew 19 verses 1 through 12 and you could read it off and you could settle every matter of those kind of the issues of today. 
It answers to gender, it answers to marriage, it answers to divorce, it answers to all those things, and yet we're afraid of it. We're afraid to put it in the public square. Jesus was not afraid to put it where it needed to be, using the scriptures. He chose specifically to set his words upon creation. Well, if you deny the creation, again, that's always been a hot issue in our churches. And that's wavering now. Well, you know, I don't know about this seven day, the six days rested on the seven thing. I'm kind of starting to lean towards, yeah, you know, maybe it's, maybe we are the result of, maybe we're the result of maybe some intelligent design, maybe some evolution, maybe in the beginning, God. I mean, this book should be the very argument for every issue of your life. I, I just don't know how to handle questions that my coworkers are asking me. You can't handle those questions if you don't know this book. And I'm not trying to be cute, but if you've got to dust your Bible off to come to church on Sunday morning, you're already in trouble. If you have not, and again, I'm not trying to... to, to emotionally manipulate you it's the truth if you only pick this up to come to church and then it goes in your car at home and then you never read it again it's no wonder you're struggling it's no wonder you don't know what to do with the issues of the day it's no wonder you look at me and say how much worse can man get a lot but you don't even know what the word says there's conversations Christians are having with these unbelievers, the unbelievers know the Bible better than they do. How does that happen? How, how does an unbeliever quote Scripture that you don't even know? Even if they're twisting it. Stand back and watch. Watch somebody use the David and Jonathan illustration. They will get a Christian all tangled up in that. Because the Christian doesn't even really know the story. I don't, know what he's, I don't know what they're talking about. I've never heard that story. never read it. My pastor's not gotten through his exposition of that yet. Don't wait for me to feed you on all this. I can't even feed us all that we need to have. You've got to be feeding on the Word yourself. If you're waiting on me to get to that exposition, we may never get there. But you can pick this book up anytime. And you have the answers. Jesus always used Scripture. When he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, it is written. It is written. It is written. Your answer to the crisis of the day, it is written. What, do you have some kind of legal document for that? No, it's written. So he goes back, he takes the hearers back to the beginning when God made the male and female, he made them in the image of God. Genesis 1.27, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. The woman, the Bible tells us, was taken out of the man. The modern women's movement of the day doesn't even like that. What do you mean I was taken out of a man? I, I don't need a man. It's not even the point. But that's what humanity does. I don't need to be taken out. Of, I wasn't taken out of the rib. I, that wasn't me. 
I don't like the way God did that. But yet that's what the Bible says. The woman's taken out of man and Adam says, Genesis 2.23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And so when we get to the ordination of marriage and by marriage this union is set forth and it's embodied under this divine sanction. God takes it, male and female, he sets them apart and he says, this is the case. They are no more twain but one flesh. Meaning that every other tie are nothing when compared to the, the bond between a husband and a wife and a male and female. Even fathers and mothers take second place to the marriage relationship. That's another whole sermon. That'll create a whole lot of other problems. If you don't learn that, your kids are going to have big problems. And it's they, that marriage relationship now comes first. And if you don't leave and cleave, it's going to create a problem. Us parents are going to have, have a hard time with that, right? Because we want that, but that's the way God sanctioned it to be. Don't be sorry for God's sanctioning. Don't be sorry for the way God made things. Don't act like it's something we got to say in the corner and be quiet about. We don't want someone to hear us. You're one of those, you're one of those God people that believes in seven-day creation and you believe, still believe in traditional marriage. By the way, traditional marriage is a terrible term. It has nothing to do with tradition. It has to do with what God sanctioned. And by the way, that term traditional marriage, that's a lot more broad than what you want to really know. <laughs> But God's clear. All other ties are nothing compared. Divinely appointed, what does it say? For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. Being divinely sanctioned, divinely appointed, this union must not be broken simply by the whims of man. In other words, man has never been given the right or the authority to determine the terms in which that union could be broken. Now one thing is true, it is easier now than it's ever been in history to dissolve or to sever a marriage. It, it takes nothing. And again, we're not going to even get, we're not even going to get a third of the way I wanted to get today. And that's all right. But I want, to, I want us to think about that even once we come back to this next week. God never appointed man to determine the terms of what marriage was, how marriage is to function, and how a marriage is to be severed. God determined it. What God has joined asunder, let not man put asunder. You know, I always think it's very important some of you know the reason, and I can share with this offline, why I'm very careful about weddings and why I don't do as many as I could. But I always think that one of the most important things that should be included in that is the very wording in which Jesus said about that marriage. Again, look what he says. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, they sh twain shall be one flesh. 
Wherefore, they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. It tells you very clear, it's not God that's going to put this, break this up. It's man that's going to do it. So our Lord clearly decides that this marriage union was to be a lifelong marriage bond. Again, remember the context. He's giving this in direct opposition to the Pharisees who ask a leading question about the lawfulness of putting away their wife for any reason. That's the context. Even in those days, again, I'm not saying this in a joking manner. I'm, I'm, I'm being serious about this. There are historical accounts of these during these times and even before where a man, if he did not like the meal that was put in front of him, he could just send his wife out and say, I'm done with you. I'm done. That's it. And it had become the norm. It was easy. It was just as easy to put your wife away as it was to remove something from your home. It, there was, it was write a bill of divorcement. She's displeased me, so she's out. That's all it took. And I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again, and people look at me like, is that really true? You can look at this. Christian divorces by professing Christians are outrunning non-believing marriages. You are more likely now as a Christian, again, I'm not, I'm not claiming they're all full professing. I'm just saying those who claim Christianity, you're more likely to end up divorced than you are to stay together. We're outrunning the secular world. Is it because something's wrong with God's way? Or is it because man has decided what terms he's going to put and break this bond of marriage? The divine law of marriage Again, and I'm going to make this statement, but I want, you, I want you to take this with a very important caveat because this is not where Jesus ends. And I know we like to run to something and we like to grab on and we say, okay, that settles it. But there's more to this. Remember, the question was for every cause. They knew and that Jesus and, and God did make a provision. All right. And again, I don't want to get attached to these provisions and get attached to it. But here's what the intent was. Again, man can take this and can make a lot of a mess out of a lot of things. But the divine law of marriage, as sanctioned and appointed by God, as being a picture specifically of what we now know of Christ and his love to the church, is that divine law of marriage was that people who were married were to remain married until death. That's why it used to be part of the, the regular marriage vows, till death do us part. Now, some people, when they get married, you might as well ask them until you grow tired of each other. Until she's not making you happy anymore. Until he is not making you happy anymore. When you were actually saying those words, till death do us part, you were taking a covenant before God to say, listen, I am going to remain in this relationship until death. For some people, death comes a year after they get married. Some people celebrate 75 years. But the, the covenant was the same. The intent was the same. The intent was, is this is supposed to be for life. 
And so even though Jesus is making a provision, understand something, Jesus, it was never an, a, an idea in his mind and in God's mind to say, I'm okay with it, but he does clearly, and we're going to look at that next week, does make a very clear provision as to something that can sever it. But what I want us to think about today, again, we've covered a lot this morning, is I want us to really think about where we are in a society today. What man needs. How are we responding to the issues of the day? You say, this hasn't even hit me yet. I'm not, I haven't dealt with this. You're going to deal with it. You're going to deal with the issues of gender. You're going to deal with the issues with attraction. You're going to deal with the issues of same-gender marriage. It's going to pop up in your family. It's going to happen. It might not be somebody in your four walls, but it's going to happen. And you're going to be put in a situation where you can sit back and say nothing. I mean, I'm indicting myself in this. We are really good at, we're, we're really good at doing nothing. We're really good at being holy and we're really good at coming in and looking holy, but then putting things into practice, we're not so good at that. And I think we all need to be better about practicing what we believe. So next week, what, I'm going to do, what we're going to do is we're going to take and pick up where we left off about understanding that the divine law of marriage was to remain married until death. And then Jesus is going to answer the second question of the Pharisees in verse 7, and they're going to misuse it. They're going to say, why did Moses then command? Here's the preview. Moses never a single time commanded for a divorce to take place. Never was a person commanded to divorce. They're not using the law properly. They're misusing it. So if you want to keep up with that, begin in verse 7 and kind of read forward, and we'll pick up next week on that. But let us not lose sight of the importance of how desperately people, no matter what their sin is, how desperately they need the gospel as these issues of today grow closer and closer to us. Let's pray together.